Why don't you turn to Acts chapter 14? You know, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul as he talks to the, I believe it's the Corinthians, where he sharing about his own struggles and the thorn in the flesh that he had and his beseeching of the Lord to remove that thorn in the flesh. And he says he repeatedly asked the Lord, but each time the Lord basically responded with, I'm not going to take it away. Uh, my grace is sufficient for you. And um, so Paul's response to that was that he was content to see God's power expressed through his weakness. And it's kind of a fascinating um, passage, and it's um, related to what we're going to talk about today. Um, Kimberly and I were doing some driving the other day, and I think I think it was during that drive she asked about um, why we suffer sometimes and why we go through hardships. And so I kind of tried to relate that to, well, I think it's good for us. It kind of drives us to the Lord. And you go back to the example of Israel. We studied the book of Judges every time they got fat and happy. Well, they turned their backs on the Lord and God had to bring oppression upon them and then finally turned their hearts back towards him. And so there's this, this pattern that, that takes place. We live in a world where there is difficulty. We live in a world where there's trouble. Our lives are not always easy. Um, we've already just even this morning talked about the Ramirez's and the struggle that they're facing right now and Jennifer with her struggles that she's facing. And um, we're just faced with trouble. We're faced with difficulty. Um, we're going to look at a passage this morning where we see that and Paul's going to use that. And it's in the context primarily of ministry, not just life, but it applies any way we look at it. Meaning we face trouble, we face difficulty, we face hardship. And um, so when we look at this passage today, what we actually see is... is um, a couple of examples of that, that Paul and Barnabas face, and then what they did with that. In other words, they used those experiences, the difficulty, the, the struggles, to then prepare the church. If you remember, they were forced out of Iconium, and they were basically stoned, or Paul was, um, and so they were kind of run out of that area from the persecution. And they headed south into the Roman province of another city, and um, came across Lystra and Derby, two cities in that, in that region, and that's actually where they met Timothy. While they were in Lystra, they began to preach the gospel, we're told. And as we would expect, based on the rest of the book of Acts, they had a fairly successful ministry there, but they also encountered some challenges, opposition, and some persecution. So as we kind of go through our study today... Um, we kind of have to ask, why did Luke include what we're going to see today? Because it's kind of a strange passage, at least from my perspective. And I've had to ask, why would Luke include what he's going to include today? And so our job, sometimes standing up here in front of you, is to try to figure out why the author might include a particular passage. And it's not always easy. You go to the epistles, and they, all, they just tell you what it's about. You know, Paul, when he wrote Corinthians pretty much gave us an outline and he goes through all the book and he says well now concerning this question you ask now concerning this question you ask now concerning well we know why he wrote that right when he wrote first timothy he told told us right in the beginning i left you there timothy because of false teachers and here's some instructions and so we kind of know when it comes to stuff like this we're not really sure why the author of a narrative like the book of acts why he decides to choose this episode and this episode and maybe this one over over there and as I was working my way through this, Luke, through Paul, 
how say it? Luke records a statement Paul made. And it's one verse in this. I'm not going to tell you what it is quite yet. I'm going to hint at it. But he makes a statement that I believe tells us why Luke chose to include this passage in the book of Acts for us. And it has to pretty much do with this. The theme is going to be that it's necessary for us to go through tribulation in order to enter the kingdom of God. We'll come to that verse in a little bit. But that's what Paul says. And so that, I think, is the reason why Luke chose to put this in the book of Acts as a reminder that entering the kingdom of God is not easy. That it comes along with trouble and tribulation and difficulty. And that's really what the word tribulation means. Trouble, difficulty, hardship, sometimes persecution. When we, when we hear the word tribulation, we think the tribulation down the line. But tribulation is just what we face on a daily basis. And so our passage, I'm going to break it down into three pieces. In the first part of our passage, we see how tribulation sometimes just involves the difficulty we face when preaching the gospel. It's just out there being Christians in this world, because of our choice to follow Christ, we'll have some difficulties, we'll have some tribulation. The second part of this passage, we actually see that tribulation is sometimes a result of direct persecution. So we'll see that as well. The third part of our message this morning we see how Paul and Barnabas took these two episodes and then used those to teach the church about something. And it's this idea that it's necessary for us to go through difficult times to enter the kingdom of God. And so they took those experiences and they went back to the churches that they had just planted and now said, okay, here's what we're going to face. So let's go ahead and break this down. We start in verse 8 of chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, and he had seen that he had faith to be made well, he said with a loud voice, Stand up, right on your feet. And he leapt up, and he began to walk. This first part here, we're going to see that sometimes tribulation or difficulties, trouble, comes just in preaching the gospel. It's just a, a consequence of being out there trying to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily brought on us or forced upon us through like persecution. We'll see that in a bit. It's just the struggles we face. And Paul and Barnabas are going to face a particular struggle here. They come across this man who's been paralyzed since birth. He's unable to walk. Sound a little bit familiar? Remember Peter? Came upon somebody very similar. And he's listening to Paul preach. Paul recognizes, as he sees this man, that... According to Luke, he had the faith to be made well. You might see in the margin of your Bibles there, but it's a more literal translation, that he had the faith to be saved. There's a reason why most translations translate that not as he had the faith to be saved, but made well. And the reason is that word sozo, that is translated as saved in the New Testament, doesn't just mean saved from hell. It means rescued, delivered, brought out of trouble. It could be used to refer to being raised up when you're sick physically. And so the interpreters have to look at the context. And from this context, they believe that this man was listening to the Apostle Paul preach. Paul likely was preaching about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, much like we see him do elsewhere. And at some point, this man believed, I could be raised up. I could walk again. And it might be because he had heard about Paul and Barnabas in their ministry in other places. If you remember... 
Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see that the Son of God talks about doing miracles and healing, and we know that Jesus himself did that while he was on earth. It may have been that as Paul and Barnabas were preaching, talking about Jesus, they might have mentioned some of the miracles and the healings that Jesus did. We also know that Paul and Barnabas were doing miracles in, in the previous city, in Iconium. If you look at chapter 14, verse 3, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, doing what? Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And so it's possible that this man, as he's there, he's hearing Paul and Barnabas preach about Jesus Christ, hearing the stories of how He healed people, how they were raised up from the dead, and... They likely knew about Paul and Barnabas and heard the rumors coming out of Iconium that these guys were performing miracles. And so there he is, he's listening, and Paul recognizes that he's got enough faith to be healed. He believes that he could be healed. We don't know, maybe he even was leaning forward and they could see the anticipation and the desire. And so, after all of this, after they see all of this, Paul sees that he has faith. He actually does what? He heals him. Now you notice there's some similarities between what happened with Peter earlier on. In fact, it's interesting, the parallels, and this is just, I think, goes to Luke's writing style. I think he looked for ways to relate these two events together. You notice that each account involves a man who was lame from his mother's womb. Both refer to um, Peter, John, and Paul fixing their gaze upon him. If you go back to that chapter, it says that Peter had fixed his gaze on him. Um, both command the men to stand up and walk. So Luke uses the same language there. He describes both men as leaping up onto their feet. Even the way the crowds respond is similar in both accounts. And so Luke... This just goes to his creativity in his writing, I think, where he draws these these two together and tells us what's similar about them. Speaking of the crowds, and this kind of leads to the, the struggle that Paul and Barnabas had, the way these crowds respond is very, very similar in both instances. If you go back to Acts chapter 3 with me, let's first look at how that, that group responded. Acts chapter 3, verse 11, after, after Peter and John had healed this man, we see this. Chapter 3, verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. So they were looking at Peter and John and thinking they did this all on their own ability. They were amazed by these men. Well, Peter has to respond, no, 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 it's not us. This is Jesus who did this. He's the one that deserves the attention. He's the one that deserves your applaud, your, you know, your applause. Now go back to chapter 14. We're going to see a very similar response from these. Now, those men with Peter and John were Jews. These are Gentiles. These are religious Gentiles. Look at verses 11 through 13. When the crowds saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have, come like, or have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the the crowds. So here we have this group of Gentiles who are accustomed to worshipping all kinds of Greek gods. How many of you are familiar with Greek mythology? I actually got a chance to visit the the, um, replica of the Parthenon down on the campus in Tennessee. There's a replica of the Greek Parthenon. It's fascinating. I was studying Greek mythology when I was in college, and so we were driving down to Florida in a big RV with about 10 other college kids, and I said, hey, there's that big old Parthenon thing down here in Tennessee somewhere, and we got a chance to visit it. That's what these people were steeped in, all their idols and their gods and everything else. And so when they see Paul and Barnabas do this, their first thought is, Zeus himself has come down. Zeus was the big god. He's the big daddy. Hermes was just his mouthpiece. I kind of wonder how... Paul might have felt <laughs> here, you know. I'm just Hermes, you know. But anyway, they're attempting to now worship them as gods. Clearly they're gods because of what they just did. And so even the priest of Zeus starts dragging the cattle over there and they want to start sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas. Both of these responses tell us something about human nature. And we see it throughout the whole world today. It's this. Mankind is prone to attribute the divine work of God to anything other than God. To false gods, to other people, to cult leaders, to fate, to natural things. Some examples. Do you know there's over 4,000 religions in the world? 4,000. They're all worshiping false gods except for one. We have hundreds, maybe of thousands of cults, even right here in the United States, that are led by men who claim to be some form of deity. I actually have a cousin who became the the right-hand assistant for a cult leader in the United States here, a fairly large one, named Elizabeth Clare Prophet. She's dead now. Um, I remember watching an expose on, I think it was 60 Minutes on her. And this cousin of mine became her right-hand person. She now is a cult figure all of her own. You go to her website and it's filled with all kinds of mysticism and everything else. And people follow her. Miracles and direct acts of God are attributed to natural causes. Think about the number of people that say, well, the Big Bang and evolution is responsible for all the creative works that we see instead of attributing it to God. Secularists and atheists attribute everything to fate and chance rather than to God. There's another area that's rather concerning too. Sometimes we even see a form of this attributing God's work to men even within the church with how we idolize certain Christian leaders. I think I may have shared a story with you a while back that I was downtown a number of years ago in Columbus I was going to the courthouse. To, I've got an office up at the courthouse, and I was doing some work up there. And when I came out, there was this man on the street that flagged me down and walked over to me. He was real disheveled. You could tell he probably hadn't slept very well and hadn't had a shower in a couple of days, hadn't shaved. And he says, where is World Harvest Church? It's kind of a strange question. I said, I was out on the east side. Why? And he's like, I need to see Rod Parsley. I knew that there's something not right here, you know, and I just come up and said, where are you from? And he's like, I'm from Iowa. I'm like, okay, you came all the way from Iowa? He goes, yeah, he goes, I sold everything I had. I bought a bus ticket, and I came here to Columbus because I got to see 
Rod Parsley because he's the Spirit of God. And this guy had slept on a park bench the night before. And so I got a chance to sit down and talk to him and say, Dude, Rod Parsley's not the Holy Spirit. Talked to him about Christ. But he was so convinced that he needed to go see Rod Parsley because Rod Parsley is the Spirit of God. Paul talks about the Corinthians who were, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. And Paul had to shut that down. It's one thing to respect a godly leader. It's another thing to put them up on a pedestal and give them godlike attributes in some respects or attribute what they do to them or even to say, well, yes, really God behind it, but... Unfortunately, many leaders fall prey even to that themselves and seem to have a tendency to think they're worth more than they really are. We've seen some rather famous Christian leaders. I will refrain from naming them again, but led very large megachurches who were sort of forced out of those churches because of arrogance and pride. And one of them, I was reading a transcript from an elder meeting, where he basically said, if you force me out of this church, I will tear it down because this is my church. I built this church. Probably a good thing he was kicked out. We have this tendency, as men and women, to attribute the things that God does to almost anything other than God. And we see that happening with Paul and Barnabas. So what's their response to this? Well, if you look at verses 14 through 18, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, you notice Barnabas there is called an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve, but an apostle was one who was sent out. And he was considered to be, I would say, um, as much of a leader as the other apostles as a result of who he was and his character. I think that's why Luke refers to him that way here. But when they heard about it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even saying these things with difficulty. They restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. So I try to think of some ways to probably summarize or describe their response in a single word. I struggled because I thought about words like they were repulsed by the behavior of the crowds or they were disgusted or they had an aversion. Maybe they were horrified at what they saw. And all of those words probably apply to how they felt, but there's one word I think that stands out probably all other words and it's the word grief. And the reason I say that is because look at how Paul and Barnabas responded. It says first that they tore their clothes Tearing of the clothes in the ancient Near East was an expression of grief. That's why they did it. It means that Paul and Barnabas' first response was they were grieved over how the crowds responded. We see it expressed in a number of ways. It says that they, or it shows that they were grieved at the crowd's attempt to deify them. Look at 15 again. Verse 15, the first thing he says is, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. 
We're just, we're just like you. We're mere, we're mere mortals. They were grieved over the thought of being lifted up and put on a pedestal and given God-like qualities or reverence that God himself deserves and no one else. It grieved them to see that. It even grieved them that after hearing the gospel, the crowd continued to worship false gods. Look at the second half of verse 15. He says, We've preached the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. But yet they were still worshiping idols. This just happens to be some human idols in Paul and Barnabas. So they were grieved over the fact that we just delivered the gospel to you We've preached the living God to you and you still want to worship idols. You still want to attribute to us treating us as idols instead of the living God. The last thing I see here is that they were grieved that the crowds hadn't recognized what God had done for them previously. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. In the generations gone by, He, the Lord, permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He permitted them to continue in their sin, if you will. And yet... Even so, he didn't leave himself without a witness. Meaning, he still revealed himself to you. Even though you chose to go your own way, and even though he allowed you to go your own way, he still continued to give you witness. We're told in Romans chapter 1 that he did that through creation. We see in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. God continued to give them witness. In fact, even went a step further than that, it says, he gave you rains from heaven. In fruitful seasons, he satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. How could you miss that? How could you not see that? It grieved Paul and Barnabas to see that they totally ignored that. And they attributed that to other gods. And so their first response here is that they're grieved. Luke tells us that even with all the pleading, it was barely enough to restrain the crowds. Verse 18, look at that. Even saying these things, even with all the pleading, even with the tearing of the clothes, it says that with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. It was hard. It wasn't easy trying to convince the crowds that they should worship Christ. You know, that's the nature of being witnesses. That's the nature of preaching the gospel. It's not easy. When we're facing an audience that's either hostile to it or attributing all kinds of things that God has done to everything else. I've had those conversations with people. You know? Try to tell them that, no, God created all this. I remember a time I stood out on the Grand Canyon overlooking it with a friend of mine, a geologist, by, by training, um, we're staring out, looking over the Grand Canyon. I knew what he was thinking. He knew what I was thinking. I jokingly looked at him and I said, So, what do you think created all this? Kind of looked at me with that look, you know. Millions and millions of years, that little river running down there, you know, just traveling through. And he knew that I was a creationist. I looked at him and I said, I think that's just as possible as some dude digging this all out with a spoon. And he just chuckled and laughed. It's hard sometimes trying to convince people when they're attributing what they see to something else. They're steeped in it. They're grown in it. Our kids face that all day long now, you know? Um, Constantly hammered with secular ideas. It's difficult. 
And so what we see here, I think, in these first few verses are the trouble that Paul and Barnabas faced in just trying to convince the world around them, in this case specifically Gentiles, to worship God. It's hard work. It's not easy being witnesses, folks. And we've got a whole area of study called apologetics. Why do we have that? It's to try to figure out arguments that we can use and techniques that we can sort of grab onto to try to help to convince the world. It's hard work. It's difficult. It's not easy. And we see that here with Paul and Barnabas. And it grieved them to know that as they worked, as they tried, this is what they faced. So I think the first bit of trouble, difficulty, tribulation that we often face is just what we face by simply trying to be witnesses and preach the gospel. We live in a hostile world that isn't always interested. I've mentioned before, there's a number of guys that I sort of have on my radar that I'm trying to witness to. And, you know, in some cases, it's been months and months of dialogue and discussion. One of the gentlemen is so ripe, he should be falling off the tree by now, but just hasn't quite fallen off the tree. It's hard work sometimes. It's troublesome. It's emotional. Let's move on. Look at verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day they went away and went away to, or I'm sorry, they went away with Barnabas to Derby. It wasn't hard enough just trying to witness to this group that was just having trouble grabbing the concept, wanted to attribute everything to false gods. So the tribulation comes in this particular instance through persecution. And that's the other side of this. Paul actually refers to this event more than once in some of his epistles. I'll just give you those citations. You can look them up in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, he refers to this event. 2 Corinthians 11.25, he refers to this event. And then also Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. You can imagine why. Paul gets stoned. They drag him outside the city and they leave him for dead. Left its mark, both physically, probably, and emotionally on him. In fact, in one of the passages of dimensions there, he refers to the scars that he bears. You would imagine. Being stoned almost to death would leave plenty of physical scars and Paul wore those on his body and it was a constant reminder that we enter the kingdom of God through tribulation, through difficulty. It's not really clear if this event takes place at the same time as the one we just read about. Some scholars believe it was maybe a little bit of time, a matter of time, shortly after, maybe weeks, months. We don't really know. I don't know how important it is. But what's important about this passage is you notice here that the persecution that comes upon Paul is brought from the outside. Isn't that interesting? It says that Jews actually came from Antioch and Iconium. They weren't from Lystra, Derby. They should have had no interest in what took place there. It wasn't their city. Why did they care? This actually becomes a pattern because the Jews had a tendency to follow Paul, sometimes pursuing him from city to city, causing trouble. Sometimes they would wait until he left and then come in. But there's a pattern that they had, trying to corrupt the believers 
the new Christians. We see that in the letter of Galatians, where they tried to come in and convince them that they had to obey the law. It was a pattern. Does it remind you of anything? Now, I'm, from, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm a good old Wisconsin boy. My brother graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. There's a group that was founded there on the campus by some college students called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Some of you may have even heard of them because they come to Ohio. They just like to target Christian entities and Christian things, and if there's a courthouse that just happens to have a Ten Commandments display up on the wall, they will hunt it down, find it, file a lawsuit, and say, that should be removed. They don't live here. Why should they care? What drives people to do that? Don't you? Go fishing. Enjoy your life. But, see, they do that. They're like the Jews going, oh, that Paul went down to Iconia or, or down to Lystra and Derby. We better go down there. I think about the LGBTQ mob that targets bakers and photographers and wedding planners. Business, what's that? And kindergartens. And kindergartens. Why? Because they hate what we stand for. They're driven by their hate. And so what Paul and Barnabas face here is outright persecution. That fits into the trouble, the tribulation that many Christians will face entering the kingdom of God. What's more interesting to me about the passage here, and I'm thankful that Luke put it in, it's how Paul responds. Look back at verse 20 again. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Went right back in. Now, he had the common sense the next day to leave. It's never wrong to try to protect your life, even as a Christian. So Paul had the common sense. If I stay here, it may happen again. So he chose to leave. God had other plans for him. We know Stephen didn't get that opportunity. He was stoned to death. But in this case, Paul does get back up, gathers up the courage, go back into the city, but then turns around the next day and does leave and likely follows the leading of the Holy Spirit to his next stop. So we see that tribulation or difficulty comes just from the struggles we face trying to witness to those around us doesn't necessarily involve persecution. None of the people that I've mentioned that I've shared with at work are persecuting me. But it is trouble and difficult sometimes, and it requires hard work and sometimes planning. Hey, I'll show up at that office just, maybe I'll see that person, whatever it is. But tribulation and trouble also comes from persecution. We face it all. So, what happens next now is Luke is going to tell us what Paul and Barnabas do as a result of these things. If you look at verses 21 through 28, we'll read that as a, as a chunk, we'll kind of see that. So 21 through 28. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And here it is, the key verse, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Did you catch that? Look at that word must. Through many tribulations, look at that word many. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Through many tribulations. It's not going to be easy. Jesus said the way is narrow. He wasn't just referring, I don't believe, to the fact that salvation only comes through faith in Christ. I think Jesus was saying, the road is narrow into the kingdom. You not only have to be born again, but you'll have tribulation. You'll have difficulty. It won't always be easy. So Paul here says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And notice there in the text it says that he was using that phrase, that teaching, to what? Strengthen and encourage them to continue in the faith. Let's read on. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had had believed. They passed through Pisidia, Antioch, basically, and came to Pamphylia, where they had spoken the word in Perga. They went down to Adia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been come, um, or in which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how He had opened the door for faith to the uh, Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So what we see here is Paul Paul and Barnabas took this experience of the difficulties that they had in in, um, preaching to the Gentiles and being called gods and having to try to dissuade them and focus them on Christ. The persecution that the Jews had leveled upon them, Paul's near-death experience. They took those experiences and went back now to the new disciples And I believe what was probably running through Paul's mind was they need to know this because if it happens to us, it will happen to them. And so they basically then went back to talk to those churches. And we're told here that they did four things. The first one, verse 22, says that they strengthened the the disciples. In the biblical context, to strengthen someone refers to providing them with what they need to remain firm in their faith. That was their purpose. We often think of Paul as an evangelist, but another major aspect of his ministry was going back and strengthening the disciples. We see it here. We see it in chapter 18, verse 23 as well. Paul wasn't content with just evangelizing, having somebody say a sinner's prayer and then moving on. And Paul was more interested in making disciples than just pure evangelism. So a major component of his teaching was instructing them in the word. That's why Paul and Barnabas stayed at Antioch. Remember, they stayed there for over a year, it says, teaching the believers. That's why Paul implored Timothy, preach the word, he says, in first in first uh, Timothy, or I'm sorry, second Timothy. He says, Preach the word, Timothy, because it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It must have been something Paul instilled in his students, this need for mentorship and discipleship, not just evangelism, because in Acts chapter 15, verse 32, it says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. That's why here at Renew, we do what we do. Why do we teach for 45, 50 minutes? Why do we get you in the Word? Trying to strengthen you. I think that's the way to do it. It's why we focus primarily on 
expository teaching and preaching, book by book, verse by verse. Because the more exposure you have to what God said, and less exposure you have to my opinions or my thoughts or Dustin's opinions, the better off you are. And so the first thing Paul did with these experiences of, it's going to be difficult. Entering the kingdom of God comes with difficulty, tribulation. Paul says, we'll go back and we'll strengthen them. And he did that by teaching and mentoring and discipleship making so that they would be strengthened. The second thing he does is that he encourages his disciples to continue then in the faith. The word for encourage here is actually the idea of exhorting or pleading with somebody. Don't give up. Remain faithful. Literally begging and pleading somebody. This often goes hand in hand with strengthening as they see here in Acts 15 with Judas and Silas. You know, the scriptures are filled with calls to stand firm in your faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. I love this. Act like men. Be strong. Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject yourself again to a, slave, uh, to a yoke of slavery. Be firm, it says. Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil and having done everything, to stand firm. Philippians 4.1 Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I'll just give you one more. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions with which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Stand firm. So Paul went back, knowing that they would face tribulation, knowing that they would face difficulty, whether it be from just doing their jobs as witnesses or whether it's from persecution they might face. Paul recognized they need to be strengthened and encouraged to stand firm. I think there's a reason why Paul spent so much time exhorting the believers to stand firm. First off, he knew what they would face. But he also knew that one day Jesus Christ is going to return. And he's going to reward the faithful. Look at, or you can just listen to this, Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he does. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. We're told to look to the coming of Christ because he's bringing his reward with him. Stand firm. Third thing that Paul and Barnabas did was to assign elders. This is interesting. Notice 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Why did Paul do that? We knew the disciples would immediately be under attack. Knew their faith would be challenged. Maybe even knew their theology would be challenged. False teachers would come in. That's what Timothy had to face. Paul looked at Ephesus and said, Dude, i got to leave you there. There are these false teachers in your midst. Paul left him there to shut that down. So he established elders. I want to turn to Acts chapter 20 and just listen to what, this is one verse, but Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul went back to visit the Ephesian elders. He didn't go back to Ephesus. He sailed by and then he called the, um, 
he was in a place called Miletus and he called for the elders of Ephesus to come so he could encourage them. But listen to what he says in verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves and also for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul and Barnabas went back to these churches and they found men who were mature, who met the qualifications that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he established them as elders and said, your job is to guard this flock, is to watch over them, to protect them much like Christ protects his flock. That's why the Bible establishes strict guidelines for elders. I had a conversation last night almost... It was almost three hours with Larry Elder, or with Larry Lytle on the phone. Larry Elder. <laughs> Larry Lytle. And wouldn't that be something? Larry Elder's calling me. Um, I think I'd rather talk to Larry uh, Lytle. But we talked for almost three hours. And uh, we even talked a little bit about this, the qualifications for elders and, and other things. But um, the Bible's really strict about the requirements for elders because we're put into a position of having to protect the flock, which means we have to understand the word, we have to understand people. Um, And so Paul went back with Barnabas and not only encouraged them and strengthened them, but established elders to shepherd and to protect them, all knowing of what they were going to face. And then lastly, Paul and Barnabas commend them, or another way to say that is commit them to the care of the Lord. Look at verse 23 again. Second half of that, verse 23, it says, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed, which in essence basically means that they called out to the Lord and said, Lord, they're in your hands. Paul knew he couldn't stay there. I'm sure he would have loved to. I'm sure Paul would love to have been in every church that he planted to be there to protect them from the false sheep, from the tribulations and the trials they would face, but he couldn't. And so the element of having to say, Lord, we're going to just trust you. And so he commends them to the Lord and puts them into his care and protection. So what do we, when we look at all of this, I think the, the big takeaway, if there, one, if there is one for me, let's just say two. One is that when we chose to follow Christ, what we chose in essence was a difficult life. Who would want this, aside from the benefits of knowing Christ? Who would want the persecution, the difficulty, the hardship? Life is hard enough on its own, isn't it? We chose to follow Christ because we know we need a Savior, because we want eternal life. But with that, we have to recognize that it comes its own shares, share of difficulties. Sometimes they come through just life like Jennifer's facing, or the Ramirez is struggling with COVID. I know others of you with medical issues and, and that. Sometimes it's just life, right? But there's an added element as followers and believers in Christ, and that's we are now witnesses, and so that adds additional turmoil, additional difficulties and struggles to our life, does it not? It brings a tremendous amount of joy, obviously, but we have to recognize that... Um, Entering the kingdom of God comes with difficulties specifically associated with just being a follower of Christ. And sometimes it's just being out there and talking. I I think I've shared a story before about when I was a resident assistant in the dorms in in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. 
the occasional phone call I'd get where people would yell and scream and swear at me at the, on the phone simply because I was a Christian. And I literally mean it that way. They would call up and they would say, you're one of those campers crusade idiots. And ram, ram, jam, ram, 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 ram. like, I didn't sign up for this. Well, I did, actually. You know, sometimes that's just life. I wouldn't call that persecution. It just comes to the territory. That guy, you know, I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know, um, trouble, tribulation, difficulty it comes. Unfortunately, sometimes it comes through persecution as well. And we saw that with Paul. We see that in the book of Acts. We see more of that here now. Um, some of the reports we hear out of Afghanistan with the Taliban hunting down Christians. Um, it's difficult, troublesome. Entering the kingdom of God has tribulation, difficulty associated with it sometimes. That's not a message I enjoy sharing. It's depressing sometimes. But we've got this good, amazing, gracious God. Um, we look through the book of Acts and we see how in spite of the difficulties that they faced and the persecution they faced, we see God act in some miraculous ways. I look at the Apostle Paul and the comments that he makes at the end of his life. There's no regret at all in Paul's words. If anything, there is this expectation of him meeting his Savior in the rewards that he will receive as a result of the tribulation and other things that he faced. That's a pretty amazing thing. And so that in itself ought to encourage us. But it is preparation. Paul went back and had to walk through the churches and remind them there's difficulty to enter the kingdom of God. But he used that to prepare them that they might now be able to be encouraged and strengthened and learn to stand firm and to know that they've been entrusted and committed to the Lord who will care for them and ultimately reward them for their faithfulness. So that's the encouragement to us, I think, as we look through this. Um, We've had it pretty easy here, haven't we? I don't know that we'll continue to have it so easy. So I believe as an elder, and I think Dustin would agree, job is to prepare us for what may very well be coming. But let's not lose heart. Let's not be discouraged. We serve an amazing God who has promised that he'll take us through it and ultimately reward us for it.